We are live in the Bergino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark Cast Iron Building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Uh, tonight's book, Down to the Last Pitch, published by DeCapo Press, the author Tim Wendell. Uh, Tim is uh, setting a record this evening, a clubhouse record. <laughs> he is our first three-time author. Really? We, yeah. The first? The first. Oh, we have a bunch of twos. <laughs> you're the first uh, <laughs> three. <laughs> so you will always have that honor. I can die a happy man. <laughs> <laughs> Me as well. Uh, Tim was here, I went back and I looked, April 2011, high heat. April 2012, summer 68. I don't know what happened in 2013. You took a vacation? Uh, well, no, I was, I was working. On <laughs> working on this, I guess. <laughs> yes. And then now uh, back with this. And for those of you uh, who don't know, especially those listening to the podcast, uh, Tim was a founding editor of USA Today's Baseball Weekly, which in its inaugural season happened to be 91, the same year as the Twins Braves World Series, the subject of this book. Uh, Tim has written 11 books. Does that include this one, or this is... That includes this okay. number 11. Number 11. Number 11. <laughs> and uh, this very highly acclaimed author is the writer-in-residence at Johns Hopkins University. So please join me as we welcome home <laughs> Tim Wendell. Good to be back. <laughs> Thanks so much, Tim. It's if it's April, I must be here. <laughs> <laughs> you are writer in residence. That's how I look at it. That's right. <laughs> uh, so uh, it's a, another fantastic book. And uh, if you would just start us off with what brought you to want to write a book about the 1991 World Series. Sure, sure, Jack. It, it's great to be back, and uh, thank you all for coming out. Um, after I finished Summer of 68, which... Uh, did very well for me. I wanted to do, obviously, another project, but I wanted to do one maybe a little bit more personal, and so hence, I got thinking about 91. As Jay talked about, uh, it was the first season that we were doing Baseball Weekly. Uh, very hectic time. We pretty much got the go-ahead to go with that publication three weeks before spring training camps opened. Uh, I think I was hired maybe a month before the camps opened. So it was like any startup in a way you were scrambling. Um, but I love Baseball Weekly. I mean, it's changed a great deal now. I mean, with NASCAR and football and everything, and I'm not really involved. But it always will have a soft spot in my heart. And so 91 kind of came up. Um, I kept some of my notes from the 91 series, which was fortuitous. And I, I kind of started getting into it. And I always have been intrigued by several of the individuals on both teams, um, Kirby Puckett, Tom Glavin, Bobby Cox, to name a few. And, you know, I think it's somewhat apropos that two of those individuals, and Cox and Glavin, will be going to the Hall of Fame here in a couple months in Cooperstown. But as I started to do my research, those of you that maybe read Summer of 68 will know um, the, the game itself is important for me and what happens between the lines but I like it when other things start to come into play. And I don't think it's, um, you know, it's been less than 25 years, but still I think some profound changes have happened within the game and outside the game that really kind of started in the early 90s. Uh, it's still the record for the number of managers fired in a season, 14. I think we started to see kind of the change between family-owned kind of uh, entities, teams, even companies, to more corporate ownership. I think that really brought much more of a, uh, intensity and, um, in a sense, as guys like Joe Torrey and such told me, it was like managing without a net. If you didn't do the job, you were going to get fired. I mean, that's just the way it was. And in a lot of ways, baseball used to be kind of like, you know, working at the local factory. If you got in at a certain age, you were probably going to be taken care of, you know, pretty much for the rest of your life. Baseball used to be kind of like that, too. 
And several of the guys I spoke with, uh, Sid Thrift before his death, um, Dallas Green, Joe Torrey, they felt the early 90s is when this started to change. So that got me going. Uh, one of the things that I love and how far the game has changed is one of the teams that had one of the highest payrolls in 1991 was the Oakland Athletics. A whopping <laughs> $36 million team payroll. But they were right up there pretty much tied with the Red Sox, Yankees, Dodgers. And yet this team will become obviously the poster child for Moneyball in about a decade. And so we'll get into some other, other changes, but that's what started to get me going. That and the fact that the games were so good, I decided pretty much early on to structure down to the last pitch into seven sections, one for each game. I felt it held up well enough organizationally you could do that. Yeah, I love the way you did that. It's just chapter one, game one, game two, game mm -hmm. three, the seven chapters. And maybe a good starting point is... I guess the an end point in some ways in the epilogue, if you remember this, mm -hmm. you told a really beautiful story about uh, a quote unquote old man in Cuba. Yeah, if you yeah. just maybe want to talk sure. about that. Um, Ninety one was also kind of a jumping off point for my career and looking at baseball and my career maybe with a wider lens, so to speak. And it's funny because we were talking a little bit about Cuba before we got started. Uh, 1992 was my first trip to Cuba. I've made three. Uh, as you guys know from my career, I've done a number of books with Cuba in the background. My first novel is set in Cuba, etc. Um, but and I thought, you know, after covering 91 is my first World Series. It's kind of this <laughs> first publication that I've got a major hand in, and we're we're conquering the world. And I thought I knew everything about baseball. Nothing really prepared me for baseball in, in Cuba, and. Um, and the very first game, they didn't have a press box. We were sitting down in the stands, and it was me and Milton Jamile, now works for the Tampa Bay, you know, Bay Rays. Um, Dan Levitard was with us, um, a guy named Bill Brubaker, a great reporter for the Washington Post. And we're sitting actually down in the, in the stands, and we're watching uh, a three-game start of a three-game series between the U.S. Olympic team and the Cuban Olympic team. Uh, the U.S. Olympic team back then was young, but they were loaded. Nomar Garcia Parra was on it, Darren Dreifert was on it, Charles Johnson, Jeffrey Hammonds. They got pummeled in the first game 16-1. to 1. Um, That infield for Cuba may be still one of the best I've ever seen with the great Omar Linares at third base. In the middle of the game, um, Hemingway kind of had his old man in the sea. I've got my old man in the baseball stadium. <laughs> um, an elderly Cuban gentleman came, and I just happened to be on the end of the row, and he sat down next to me in the aisle, and he said, you're American? I said, yes. And he said, tell me about the Minnesota Twins. You know, they had won. And I kind of went into a little bit of my sports talk and broken Spanish. You know, pretty much it's going to be tough for them to repeat. Um, they're going to lose a number of players. You know, nobody had, you know, they had lost Morris at that point. They're going to lose some more. Their farm system's not the best. And he said, I know all that. I went, Okay. What do you need to know? Because obviously he knew as much factually about the Twins, the reigning world champions, as I did. And he said, I need to know what they look like. And at that point, I realized, ooh, we're in a different part of the world. I mean, things are so cut off that they can get information about statistics and who's with the team and rosters, but they don't know what people look like. So I started going around the diamond, and I went. Uh, I probably started with Kent Herbeck, uh, Chuck Knobloch at second, Greg Gagne at um, short, Scott Leyes at third. I probably put yeah, put Jack Morris on the mound, Bruce Harper, and and Milton Jamile and Levitard are helping me kind of describe what these guys look like. And the last guy I got to finish with is Kirby Puckett, who's difficult enough to you know describe in English, let alone <laughs> in some kind of Spanglish thing thing. And, and how do you describe a guy, a bowling ball of a guy that runs so fast? Yeah, I don't know. But w we did it. And as I was doing so, I was like kind of looking out, as you will, like out on the field, just trying to find words, and guys next to me are helping me. And so I'm not really looking at the old man. And when I finished with Puckett, I turned to him and said, there you go. There's your 1991 Minnesota Twins, the world champions. And what I hadn't realized is he had started to cry. He had tears starting to run down his face, and he just stood up, slapped me on the back, and said, thank you, now I know. 
And so it kind of propelled me to write her in a couple different directions. It started this infatuation I have with Cuba, but it also made this series, the twins, the Braves, especially somebody like Puckett, you know, will always kind of have a special place with me. That's a beautiful story. And uh, something very special about the series, we'll probably get into questions from the crowd. They may have some very specific questions about the seven games, so I'm going to try to stay away from that. Sure. But something that I completely forgot about, we spoke about it earlier, but I, I remembered it when I read the book, is that both cities held parades yes. after the series. Yes. I mean, this was such an even series that both cities held victory parades. Atlanta's was bigger. Um, and, and, and you had a number of people. Uh, John Sherholtz, the Braves general manager, said, well, you know, I'm disappointed in a sense technically lose the World Series, but I'm not that disappointed because I feel we won all the outdoor games, hinting at that maybe that's the way baseball should be played, and they won all the indoor games in that Metrodome place. Um, probably Mark Lemke may sum it up the best. He said probably what we should have done is uh, maybe stopped Game 7 after nine innings, scoreless tie, bring out a chainsaw and cut the trophy down the middle. And well, yeah. <laughs> but we saw that, well, that worked in the All-Star game, so we probably wouldn't do that. <laughs> uh, you referred to a few of them already. So in, mm -hmm. the, uh, in the aftermath of the book, first you start with, I believe, the Twins. You give a little summary of about a dozen guys or so, and then you move on to the Braves and a little summary of a dozen guys. Uh, and just some of the names that I'm sure the crowd and those on the podcast will remember, ranging from some stars, obviously, downward, uh, for the Twins. Kirby Puckett, Jack Morris, Ken Herbeck, Greg Gagne, Chuck Knobloch, Dan Gladden, Rick Aguilera, Brian Harper, Gene Larkin, Scott Leyes, Kevin Tappany, Scott Erickson, Chili Davis, and Tom Kelly. Mm -hmm. Just... Any thoughts about any of those or anything you really want to say about that? The, the first thought that comes to mind is how quickly that roster disappears, you know, how quickly it dissipates. And I think um, it's funny. I was talking to a friend of mine down in Atlanta the other day, and, and, you know, they're still bitter, but they're not that bitter. <laughs> but in a way, it's almost a cautionary tale, I think, a little bit. The twins win. But the twins have never, in my mind, been the same. Since this time period, 91, yeah, they've made the playoffs, but they've gone 3-22 and 22 in the playoffs. And the conversations I had with some of the Braves, like Terry Pendleton and Mark Lemke, they brought up the fact that, you know, if we had one, maybe we don't start this tremendous run of 13 more consecutive appearances in the World Series. Granted, they got a mulligan in 94, you know, with the with the uh, labor dispute. But, you know, in, you can say in a lot of ways, Jay, that the certainly the 91 champions are the twins. I think the team that gains the winning legacy because of the series is the Braves. Very interesting. And then the Braves group that you have... Hmm. Mark Lemke, Ron Gant, Steve Avery, Terry Pendleton, Tom Glavin, John Smoltz, Deion Sanders, Alejandro Pena, Greg Olson, Mark Grant, Otis Nixon, Lonnie Smith, and Bobby Cox. Yeah, for the most part, that crew stays together. I mean, you have... You know, Avery is looks like he's the second coming of Sandy Koufax in that playoff and World Series. Um, he kind of fades, but then they bring in Maddox, obviously, to bluster out that rotation with Smoltz and Glavin. Um, and I think it's it's intriguing a little bit with the Braves that I think, and I know the Yankees up here beat them, you know, several times. But in some conversations I had with some people like Jim Cotton, etc., they felt. This team doesn't quite get its due over the length of time. And they feel if they'd had a quality closer, you know, maybe somebody like an Aguilera or something like that, and God forbid if they'd had a 
great closer, like a Re- Mariano Rivera or a Dennis Eckersley, who was, was in his heyday in 91, they probably win three or four championships. I mean, World Series titles. That was the Achilles heel with that team, was, you know, closing. And, you know, who's going to finally close out the games? Hence, you've got Charlie Lee Brandt pitching at probably pivotal times, which maybe isn't the best thing. The other thing I think, too, and and I don't begrudge Bobby Cox, um, but I know he's been criticized at times for being a very good manager in the regular season, and I still find some of the moves he made in 91, hmm, well, let's just say they backfired. And, and I think if you talk to Cox, you talk to people like Billy Bean, you know, with the A's, um, a great many baseball people tend to feel the playoffs tend to be uh, a real just roll of the dice. You know, the main thing is let's get there and then see what happens. Um, I arguably think you could maybe have done some different things bullpen-wise, but that's 2020. Didn't come on in. A Pirates fan is here. That's good. <laughs> I like the Pirates. <laughs> uh, you mentioned earlier that you had your notes from 91 as you yeah, started so. I wish I had more of them. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously you followed the World Series ex- extremely closely, uh, both probably as a, just as a baseball fan, but mm. also working with uh, Baseball Weekly and so forth. But as you started to write the book, and you did the research. Were there things that really was anything really surprising? Oh, there was several things, and I, I think the most marked one. And this is why I think you 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 go deep on these things, Jay. Or these are the things you kind of live for a little bit. Game six, bottom of the eleventh, score tied at three. Kirby Puckett's coming up, and <coughs> before the game, he had said, "Jump on my back, boys, and since I'll win you this game." Legend has it, Kirby Puckett um, was looking to hit a home run and end the game. Well, not right. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I noticed when I was looking, and I, I watched the footage for these games over and over again, and one of the things that struck me in game six is they're coming back from commercial break, and you see down on the field, yeah, Puckett's up, but he's talking very intently, borderline argument, <coughs> with his best friend, arguably, on the team, Chili Davis, who's in the on-deck circles, due up next. Uh, when I interviewed Davis, one of the things I asked him was, man, you know, before Puckett's home run in game six, it looks like you were really you know, talking up a storm. What was all that about? And he just kind of smiled and said, you want to know? And I went, yeah, of course I want to know. <laughs> and he told me the story that flips kind of legend on its head uh, to a certain degree. Charlie Liebrandt's on the mound. Uh, Puckett usually didn't hit that well against change-up guys. You know, he, he liked guys that brought a little bit more speed to the plate. So what he and Davis were debating is Puckett had gone to Davis before he went up, and he didn't say, I'm going to hit a home run. He said, I'm going to bunt my way on. I'll steal second, and you, Chili, hit me in. <laughs> Or Chili went, that's a bad idea. <laughs> and so what you see them doing on the field is Davis arguing Puckett out of this harebrained scheme he's kind of cooked up. And so Davis then pretty much argues Puckett out. You know? and, and one of the things that the twins were great about was, um, yeah, they would take walks and they would, you know, maybe bunt, but it was Puckett who coined the frame, uh, phrase, we're always looking for a knock. In other words, we're looking for a hit. We're not looking to get on in some kind of maybe wussy way. We're going to get a hit. And so Davis is kind of reminding him of this at that point. Hang on, Kirby, you said you were always going for a knock and you want to go for a bunt. <laughs> and so they're going back and forth, and Davis wins Puckett over. He convinces him. Puckett's like, you're right. I'll go for a homer. <laughs> and and now Puckett goes up to the plate. First pitch from Charlie Liebrandt's a circle change, change up on the outside half of the plate. And I've looked at this footage a ton of times. It came in about at the knee and just maybe a shade below. Ed Montague calls it a strike, the home plate umpire. 
And now suddenly Chili Davis is in the on-deck circle getting pretty worried. He's going, oh, no, maybe I gave him the wrong idea. <laughs> and, and he's now barking out to Puckett. If he throws another low one, you got to swing, Puck. And so it ends up, works the count. Puckett is actually pretty patient in that. Goes to two to one, and he hits it, and, and the ball goes out. Even though it's one of those home runs you aren't sure about at first. And you got to imagine, you know, the Metrodome had all that funkiness with it, with the plexiglass above the center field wall. You had a hefty bag in right field. I mean, and all kinds of weirdom. And so that's one reason why Puckett, as he hits that ball, is running hard out of the batter's box because he's not sure if it's going out. It may be you know, a double off the wall, who knows? And pretty much um, in the interviews I did, the only guy who knew right away that it was going out was Ron Gardenhire, then the third base coach, now the manager of the Twins, who was like looking, engaging the outfielders and going, ah, I think we're playing tomorrow night. Whereas <laughs> Davis, Chili Davis, down in the on deck circle, was like, going, I don't know, could be. <laughs> Maybe I'm still going to have to drive him in from second. So um, those are the kind of the moments you live for, and I think that's one reason you do the due diligence, is I think a lot of people, you know, it's easy to get caught up in the legend, and the legend is Kirby Puckett went up in the bottom of the 11th to hit a home run and win the game and force a game seven. Well, he did, but that wasn't his intent at first. But then he ended up on the cover, so. Yes, like this, and one reason he's got his hand up like that, he just realized it just went out, so uh, he can stop running so fast. <laughs> I don't know what Chili Davis was doing at that point, going, whoo! <laughs> In your uh, conversations with Lonnie Smith, mm-hmm. did any of the uh, uh, Tim McCarver commentary come up? Hmm. It did, let's just say Lonnie... <laughs> Lonnie's been kind of singled out, I think, because I think as he points out, if he, well, let's back up. Lonnie Smith's at first base, up comes Terry Pendleton. Terry Pendleton scorches a double that's pretty much in the left center gap, easily should have scored Smith, but as Pendleton later told me, he's cruising in the second after hitting that, looking over at Jimmy Williams, the third base coach for the Braves, are ready to give him like a attaboy or on the board and this might be all we need or something and then he looks over and there's Williams and standing next to him is Lonnie Smith and he's like how'd that happen Um, Lonnie lost the ball Um, the pantomime pretend double play that Greg Gagne and Chuck Knobloch certainly is beautiful but it had no bearing on the play uh, what had happened was, in essence, Smith had lost the ball pretty much up in that Teflon-colored roof. And if you look back at the series, there's several moments. Justice and Gant almost run into each other early on. Another time, Lemke and Justice almost hit each other. And as Brian Harper, the Twins catcher, told me at one point, he said, we learned very early in that building, you never took your eye off the ball. Any other place you could, like the ball came off the bat, you could look, okay, it's going here, I'm going to run here, I'll pick it up again. You wouldn't pick it up. And um, so Smith, I think, did, you know, he messed up losing the ball, but then he did the right thing, in a sense, going in the third, making it the third. He said, if I thought it was a double play, I would have slid. I didn't slide. I was I stood up. I'm looking for the ball. The other guy trying to deke him out that's completely forgotten is Dan Gladden, the left fielder, who's kind of pretending he's going to catch this ball, and he's kind of like this, and then he kind of pulls down his glove as it goes by and hits off the wall, and, and they throw it in pretty quickly. So there was like a whole bunch of deception and dekes going on there. But as Pendleton, Smith in his own way, um, point out, that it was second and third with no out, with the heart of the order coming up. And in some ways, it's a real testament to um, Jack Morris for getting out of it, even though there's another, there's so many stories within stories, just in that little half, you know, half inning. Uh, Brian Harper, uh, the first out is a ground out to Herbeck unassisted. Uh, so now it's one out, still Pendleton at second, Smith at third. And um, up comes, uh, who is it? Justice, I believe. And they decide to walk Justice. 
Anyway, it ends up with a double play. Sid Bream rolls over on one. And before, just before that pitch, you got bases loaded, uh, one out, and uh, Bream up. Brian Harper suddenly had, suddenly thought, he had this kind of nightmare <laughs> vision. And his vision was, they're going to hit a grounder to Morris, who's going to throw home to me for the second out. I need to throw on the first for the third, and we somehow get out of this inning, and I throw it over Herbeck's head, and it clears the bases or something, and I become Bill Buckner. That's what he thought. And, and then he's settling down into the crouch for the pitch, and he's thinking this, going, i got to get this out of my mind. <laughs> and the very next pitch, what happens is, a slow grounder, but it's not to Morris. It's to Herbeck. Throws home to Harper. <laughs> kind of shaky. <laughs> Harper's got the ball, and if you look at the replays of it, he kind of he, he's doing everything right, but ooh, it's got a woozy, and he's kind of steps out, and he just kind of short arms <laughs> it up here, and, and, and going off the field. Um, what Herbeck spikes the ball, you know. Morris is all excited. He's like this, and the guy who's kind of wobbling off the field is Harper because somebody just avoided his worst nightmare that he dreamed up a nanosecond before the play started. So you know that it's just that was just a bizarre inning. And then as Pendleton sums up, he goes, "All right, we had second and third, no outs. We don't score." And then if you look at the tape, and Pendleton said too, as he's going off the mound, he's looking over and going. Oh, we got goddamn Jack Morris on the mound, and we just let him off the, off the canvas. So, whatever. <laughs> well, I, I may have a Jack Morris question, but I think that now's a good time to turn it to oh, our uh, Jack Morris questions. <laughs> to our uh, yes. Uh, you talked about the Kirby Park at home run. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts and comments on Babe Ruth? Oh. That's in May, May 7th. <laughs> I'll leave it to the expert coming in. Um, the thing I, I get struck by at times with the World Series is, you know, in some ways the, these, these homers come around and there's some kind of strange symmetry to them in a way. In my mind, the pucket home run for me will always be very similar to the Fisk home run in 75. You know, very, you know, game six, you know, deals and, you know, decide extra innings and you know both of them are very demonstrative in front of a home crowd and it's you know I think that's one of the fortunate things we have with the game is sometimes it comes back around and I must admit I, I forgot who I, I think I was sitting next to for that game Roger Angel from the New Yorker and and we could hardly hear each other the place was so loud but and he was saying something I was going, what I think I lost a lot of hearing out of this year in that series <laughs> but and I kind of leaned in and what he was saying it was almost like you know, he was repeating. He was going, Fisk, Fisk. <laughs> oh, I get it now. Okay, yeah, it's like that. So, um, you know, that's one of the cool things I think about baseball. Back here. All right, so I'll be the one to do it uh, with the blackjack. Explain to me why a non-ERA-related reason why he's not a ball of fame. As a Tigers fan, I, I love the man ball <laughs> um, That game alone, how is he not... Can you think of any rational reason besides this fictitious ERA nonsense <laughs> why he's not... No, and I think he should be. I mean, the ERA is a bit high, but what you have to remember, and I was talking to Kirk Gibson about this, and they were obviously teammates in in Detroit, and um, Gibson pointed out that Morris, unlike maybe pitchers today, would pitch to the game conditions. And and they have a great... um, Gibson remembered what they were together in Detroit at some point, and, and Morris is getting rocked kind of early. And um, I think he's down like eight, nine runs or something, like after a couple innings. And, you know, Sparky Anderson's kind of, well, I don't know, I should take this guy out. And Gibson comes back, and he wants none of it. And he says something effective. Well, I never lost a game when my team got me ten runs. <laughs> and they did get him ten runs, and he won. <laughs> so, you know... He would do what it takes. Um, I kind of wonder a little bit, you know, being so cantankerous has worked against him. I mean, we have a line in the book. I actually got to credit my editor, Bob Pigeon, for putting it in. I mean, you know, a lot of the ball players will have, um, you know, on their bills, um, you know, because they put down the caps and the gloves and everything, they'll put down the number or maybe got 
I don't know, some kind of nickname or a saying or something. I forgot Ron Gantz was suddenly, you know, keep the faith or something like that. Get uh, Morris's cap didn't have a number, didn't have a phrase. It just had A. And all I will say was, as we stay in the book, A stood for derriere. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody knew it was his cap. <laughs> right here. Of 1991 World Series, what's the first player or play that comes to your mind? Hmm. Well, <coughs> Puckett's home run. I think maybe Morris's performance in Game Seven. You know, pitching ten shutout innings, the first guy since Tom Seaver to go, um, you know, pitching the extra innings and such. I love how he pretty much refused out of come out of the game. Don't, don't do this with your teams. <laughs> but his manager, Tom Kelly, pretty much came to him after he pitched nine and said, you know, that was great. You've done all you can. We've got a great bullpen. And they did. I mean, they had Aguilera, who was kind of like Eckersley light, so to speak. I mean, he was, you know, almost as good. And, um, and Morris pretty much told him in no uncertain terms, I'm not coming out of the game. In a sense, I will... How many pitches did he throw? He hit 100, finishing the ninth, I believe. And so, and he was going. And, and, and again, one of the things, it's funny you bring up pitch counts. Uh, one reason Kelly was getting worried, the, the Twins manager, is the Twins didn't keep track of pitches. But what they did keep track of, and Kelly's the only one who did, he kept track of time. How much time has my pitcher been on the mound? And once it got past, say, two hours, 15 minutes, something like that, he would start getting kind of antsy. He felt time rather than, like, pitch count, bean counter thing was important. But Morris pretty much said, I'm not coming out. And, and, and Brian Harper told me this story. He's, like, sitting there kind of going, you know, the catcher kind of going, oh, I don't know, it looks like about right. have a brawl here in the, <laughs> the dugout. And, and Kelly, to his credit, um, you know, he certainly had arms ready in the bullpen, but he kind of—it was building up to the kind of this. You know, I'm staying in, and you—you you can't take me out, and all this type of stuff. And Kelly, to his credit, kind of just kind of spun out his heel, and I think this would make Kelly a great manager. Just kind of, all right, then, you know, it's only a game, <laughs> and that diffused the whole thing. Everybody was kind of listening in and getting anxious, you know, among the twins. Oh yeah, okay. It's only a game. <laughs> they went and went back out, and he, he pitched a great. I would pitched a great tenth, better than pitched a better than an eighth, even than ninth. Before the next court, just I don't want to let that pass. That was fascinating. Uh, Tom, so Tom Kelly, had anyone ever done that before, or has anyone done that since about time on a mound versus pitches? I don't know. I, I found it very intriguing because it made a lot more sense to me. Yeah, you know me. I mean, when I was here talking about with the first book with High Heat, um, you know, there's a growing contingent within baseball that's fed up with pitch guys, right. especially some of the young, you know, fireballers, whether it's Strasburg or Price or guys like that. I mean, it drives them nuts. And and to have Kelly talk about time, that made more sense than somebody just kind of sitting there, you know, as a bean counter yeah. type of thing. Kelly. Um, Kelly was blessed in a way that his top player in Puckett ran out everything. And so he didn't really have to, you know, knock heads to get hustle plays or anything. When your top player's, you know, doing it, everybody else falls in the line. I mean, Aguilera tells this great story about Puckett where, um, uh, what, Aguilera got traded from the Mets, joined the Twins when they're playing up here in the Bronx, playing the Yankees. And he, he showed up after the game started, gets in his uniform, kind of comes down at old Yankee Stadium into the visiting dugout, and is just kind of looking around, and nobody's really noticed he's there yet. And uh, Puckett is up to bat. There was guys on. He makes the last out. He comes back to the dugout, and he's upset. I mean, he's not throwing a helmet. He's not swearing, but you can tell. He's you know, I didn't do my job. And then he looks up, and he sees Rick Aguilera. And he recognizes Aguilera, and he just kind of stops everything. He gets a smile on his face, and he comes down, gives Aguilera a hug, and says, you're going to love playing for the Twins. And Aguilera at that point said, I've been with this team three minutes, and I'm ready to run through a wall for this guy. So, you know, that's the way you know, Puckett kind of was. And Kelly, 
was probably the ideal guy for that kind of veteran team with Puppet right. and Herbeck and guys like that. Right here. Uh, yeah. uh, earlier you had uh, speaking generally about uh, just the changes in the game that have happened since 91. Yeah. Uh, do you feel that these changes are you know, becoming more corporate or whatever? Has, has that been good for baseball, you think? Um, it's a mixed bag, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think we've got a lot of changes that it struck me as the more I got into the early 90s, how things, you know, have changed. Um, You know, we're still in that sweet spot of the season where everybody, a fan of any team, even even the Houston Astros, can still believe they can win it. And if anything, these two teams maybe exacerbated those expectations because both went from last place to first place. Both were last place the year before, and this was the, you know, the Red Sox go worst to first last year, but these were the first two teams to do it, and to have two teams do it and then have a meet in the World Series and beat arguably better teams in the playoffs. I mean, the, the Atlanta upsets Pittsburgh, and that's a team of Bonds and Bonilla and some great pitching, and arguably the Twins have even a bigger upset in beating the Blue Jays, who go on to win the 92 and 93 series. I think it was great kind of for the game, but I think it made it easier for many ownership and front office, and this is kind of what Tory was talking about in a way, um, if you're not getting the job done quickly, you're probably going to be shown the door. And, and, and that twist started to happen there. One of the things that I found amazing that's kind of dropped out of the vernacular a little bit is rebuild. Yeah. People don't rebuild anymore, team. They retool or all these other kind of weird things. Somehow we go, Abracadabra, you're good. <laughs> and and so that's that's very bizarre and but and but another change that's happening in ninety one that I think has been mostly good, even though I would kinda of worry about how the taxpayers' money is being spent at times, is what's going on in ninety one is the folks in Baltimore are racing the finish Camden Yards, which puts in this whole new wave of kind of more fan-friendly ballparks. And one of the things that struck me, I I think one of the most um, important people in the last 20 years in baseball is a woman named Janet Marie Smith. Janet Marie Smith is the architect expert the Orioles brought in after HOK, the designers who get all all this... uh, attention uh, for building these beautiful ballparks, their initial blueprints in Baltimore, the warehouse was leveled, the surface parking, multiply what you have probably by about five or six, it didn't fit into the inner harbor there. The, and the Orioles, mostly Larry Lucchino said, uh, we got to push back at this and this isn't my expertise. And they brought in Janet Marie Smith, uh, who's got her PhD in architecture, and she's the one who in essence it's her fingerprints over Camden that made it what it is. And she's now gone on to, you know, um, Turner Field, even though that's going to be now another stadium, the renovations at Dodger Stadium, etc. She is, um, I just love talking baseball and baseball design with her and just how important baseball can be to just our cities. Sure. Yeah. Right here. Yeah, um, you talked to a uh, point uh, about uh, the... Uh, I thought was uh, that the, uh, the Braves, they just kept on going and the, the Twins sort of faded away. Mm-hmm. Uh, I played in the, in the Braves organization in the early 60s, mm-hmm. uh, 60, 61, 63, and of course, obviously, the game changed. But I played with a guy named Paul Snyder, who was an architect of mm-hmm. the player development, scouting player development. I think that's the genesis of where, where the, uh, the, the, the Braves kept going, mm-hmm. in, in producing players, where... The twins it wasn't so much that way. So, did you have a, did you have an interview? Uh, yeah, and I, I think you're right to a large degree. I mean, there is. It's funny we're just bringing up the Orioles and such. How there used to be an Oriole way, so to speak. I think yeah. for decades now, there's right. been a Braves way. Yeah, and you wrote a whole book about the uh, pamphlet. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I think that helped them was <laughs> it hurt them at first. But in a sense, ownership, and I'm meeting Ted Turner, was kind of all over the map. I mean, he fires Bobby Cox. Bobby Cox goes to Toronto, which one of my favorite quotes of 
you know, baseball firings where they, <laughs> they've let Cox go and they're having this you know, press conference where he's been fired the first time. And, um, and they, somebody asked Turner, well, what kind of guy are you looking for now to help, you know, either as the GM or me as the manager? He goes, and, and this is beautiful, Turner. He goes, um, well, it, it, well, ideally, it would be somebody like Bobby Cox, but <laughs> we just fired him. <laughs> but they bring him back. And, um, and, and Pendleton had some great things. You know, Cox, again, maybe, you know, was maybe better for the long haul and, again, regular season. But one of the things players used to love playing for him, and Pendleton pointed out at one point, you know, if, if a game, things weren't going well, everybody would start losing it to a certain point. Oh, geez, look, about that. we're not doing that. Well. And Cox would be kind of the, you know, settle down. You know, Pendleton always called it the grandma force. He'd be like the grandmother. It's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. <laughs> <laughs> and it would be. <laughs> so, um, you know, he, he had a great eye for talent, too. I mean, he picked out, you know, somebody just, like that. Just Jones one Jones. other thing. I, sure. I, I know Bobby Cox, and I played against him. He was with the Dodger organization back in the early 60s. Mm-hmm. And I reintroduced myself after many, many years at City Park. And I walked up and I said, you know, I, I played ball back in the 62. We played against each other in the Northwest League. And I, you know, introduced myself. He says, uh, I played with Yakima. What, wait a second. You played with Rico Cardi? He says, Brainiac? Yeah. <laughs> he said, I played second. I remember. <laughs> yeah. He says, I couldn't believe it. I thought he was just trying to make me feel good. But he, you know, he, he's really, he says, uh, I, I asked him, why, how can you remember all the players that you, he said, it was the first couple of years of my of my career in mm-hmm. professional baseball. You never forget that. Um, he, salt he, of the earth, a great, uh, great guy. Yeah, and he forgets uh, very little. And maybe that's what. Well, it can be such a settling force. I get the feeling almost every situation you've seen before. So it's amazing. Right here. Um, Earlier you mentioned about the reconstruction of the Atlanta Stadium um, and whether or not the game is still the same as it used to be. Mm. I'm an old man, so I remember it. I'm I'm getting a big old man, too. But now we have City Field Mm -hmm. with Fred Wilpon and Bernie Madoff and those people building a new stadium. And my question is, what is the future of baseball? I think you implied that earlier in something you said. Mm -hmm. Is it corporate or is it the American game? Mm. Well, it's certainly gone more corporate. And I think in terms of stadiums, what bugs me a little bit is so much taxpayer money being used to build um, one reason I like <laughs> well a couple reasons I mean I used to work out in the Bay Area we used to talk a lot about I mean I, I, I cut my teeth covering games at Candlestick which at times you were just like going what is going on out there <laughs> I still remember one night where the what the the state flag with the bear was blowing straight up. <laughs> the American flag was blowing straight down, and they weren't that far apart. And we ended up talking with uh, Brett Butler, who was playing center field that night. We said, uh, how are you catching those fly balls when one flag's blowing up, the other's blowing down? And he said, prayer. <laughs> <laughs> but one reason I kind of like the San Francisco new ballpark was pretty much privately financed. And, and I think, you know, these guys are making a lot of money, so um, maybe it's time to throw in a little bit more of their own dime on some of these new temples. John, you had something? Yeah, I do, Tim. Um, I think this question is influenced. Jay, is the podcast still, still going? Oh, we're going. Go ahead. Don't, don't curse. All, don't all curse. All the nifty stuff you have here, my uh, field of vision has been fixated uh, on Tim and at times <laughs> on the figurine over there in the dugout special. Uh, I believe it's entitled Farewell to Riverfront. And Tim, you write about in uh, Down to the Last Pitch, uh, I love all your stuff from USA Today, basically. But you wrote, you were one of the early um, folks saying that, speaking of the whole, that Rose yeah. should be there. Yeah. What, uh, 25 years have passed? Mm-hmm. What, what are your thoughts with regards to Rose? And uh, are, have you, did you get flat when that, art, when that, cal- that uh, column came out? And do you think uh, society has come to your way to think? Um, so two questions there, Tim. <laughs> it, Rose is actually in this book. Because 91's the year he gets banished. 
Um, actually, Roger Maris is in this book, too, because this is a year as asterisk. It's a lifted from the single-season home run mark. I mean, this is why everything gets to be kind of an interesting swirl. Um, about this time, I wrote a column for Baseball Weekly saying, um, time to let bygones be gone bygones, let's get the hit king back in. I've never received so many phone calls from past players as I did then, saying, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and so that's when I went to speak with John Dowd, who is an attorney in D.C. who did the Dowd Report. Um, ironically, John and I became, you know, you know, pretty good friends. We discovered we only lived about two miles away from each other in Virginia. Uh, he's, he's since moved, but... Um, so he was, uh, and so that is kind of all encapsulated here. Let's jump ahead a bit. I think, I think Rose is going to get in in the next, well, let's take a guess, 510. And I say this for a reason because among, well, let's just say a very significant person has kind of moved into his camp and is supporting him, and that's Joe Morgan his former teammate, who is ambivalent at best when you're talking about in 91 when he got vanished. Um, pretty much a lot of his ex-teammates weren't in his corner. Now, Morgan, and it's pretty much because of another thing that we're building up to in 91, which is steroids and PEDs. Morgan has kind of, if I'm reading the tea leaves, and I'm pretty sure I am, started to indicate steroids is more egregious sin than what Pete did. And I'm going to start backing him. Now, if it was just any other ex-ball player, who cares? The other thing you got to keep in mind is Morgan is very, I think he's, forgot his title, but he's on the board of trustees at Cooperstown for the Hall. And um, if Joe has suddenly decided to kind of back his guy Pete, that's got a heck of a more, lot more weight than if it was Johnny Bench or somebody like that. Uh, we'll go here and here. Go ahead. Um, well, now that this, this book is out and doing the press for it, um, are you looking at, or are you already working on a, a, a future project, or, you know, uh. can, can you think <laughs> about what that might be, or where, where you might be looking? I, I don't know. I'm starting to cast <laughs> things out. And what's weird is, I didn't realize, you know, Jay was talking about the last three books, and I've been fortunate enough to be here and talk with, you know, folks here. and. And such, but they've, in my mind, formed this kind of odd trilogy a little bit. High Heat was in search of the fastest picture of all time. You know, kind of went out and had a lot of fun with that, and got to talk with like Bob Feller before his death, and you know Steve Delkowski and Ryan, etc. I mean, that was an idea I came up with and just went for it. Um, I loved <coughs> Summer of '68 because it brought in like politics and. And when the country was in upheaval, and I think one reason we made it through was the power of sports. I mean, there's been a lot of books written on 68, but I feel mine was the first to put sports in the forefront as opposed to having to be some kind of cute backdrop. And when that, after that came out, I was thinking, okay, what's next? And I wanted it to be kind of personal again, and hence I went back to 91. Right now, I'm not sure what the next one is um, but in my mind those make kind of a, an interesting I hope baseball trilogy you know maybe not as you know you know I wasn't thinking trilogy halfway through I'm not uh, Tolkien or somebody but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll take back here and then up here uh, I obviously Bucket is the emotional leader of the team is he the real leader of the team because you got some strong personalities on that team like Ken Herbert and uh, mm -hmm. Shirley Davis so I'm just curious if he's the real leader yeah, and, and what was interesting was these strong personalities, for the most part, all were rolling in the same direction. Um, Herbeck was the local hero made good. I mean, he grew up from his bedroom window. He could see the lights of the old stadium in Bloomington. I mean, and then he's starring for his team. As Greg Gagne said, in a lot of ways, the twins at this era would always be Herbeck's team. I mean, he's, he's the favorite son. But Herbeck, in conversations I had with him, you know, he would say, you know, Kirby rose to the occasion, and, and, and w there was never any friction between them. 
there was a little bit of concern when Morris joined the team, who can be, you know, as we were talking about, a you know, very headstrong guy. Um, but Herbeck and Puckett kind of pulled him in. And I think to talk about Chile, Chile, in essence, for him, still Kirby Puckett's the best friend he ever had in the game. I mean, so much so that when Puckett suffers, suffers a stroke and he's on life support, it's pretty much Gladden and Davis who plead and convince the medical personnel, keep him going just a little bit longer. There's some other guys that like to come in and say goodbye. And as Gladden pointed out, it wasn't like per, you know Puckett could hear him at that point. It was more for them. Uh, due to uh, time constraints, podcast time constraints, we're going to have to uh, stop the podcast shortly. So, and then we can pick up again. But on for the podcast part of this, I would like to give the last word to Tim, uh, which is the last power. If you don't mind, sure. if you'd like to just read the last paragraph of the book, and that'll be our final word for the podcast. Oh. I think it starts the players. End of game seven. The players themselves were reluctant to clear the field after Dan Gladden crossed home plate as the Braves' Terry Pendleton hugged the Twins' Shane Mack and Puckett, uh, and, and Puckett while Tom Kelly talked with Ron Gant. A scene that was as close to hockey shaking of hands before uh, the Stanley Cup is awarded briefly unfolded here. In the Twins' clubhouse, Commissioner Faye Vince declared this was probably the greatest World Series ever played. And the twins soon afterwards broke into an impromptu rendition of Queen's We Are the Champions. Players on both teams talked about how the World Series trophy could have, could have been, perhaps, should have been, split in half. That's how close and how well played these handful of games were. Almost each one with its own particular hero tour, that's how it had played out. In the end, of course, the hardware stayed in the Twin Cities with winter coming on hard. Everyone involved was left with the memories of the last fine time in baseball. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Tim. And again, just for those uh, on the podcast, we're going to have to say farewell. The book, Down to the Last Pitch, author Tim Wendell, published by DeCapo Press. <laughs>